Heavenly Father, we're going to open and study your word. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and impress the truth upon our hearts and minds and empower us to live holy and godly lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to uh, study the fruit of the Spirit this week. And I hope I can get through all of the material in five days, five mornings. <clears throat> Way back in uh, AD 67-68, the Apostle Peter wrote in his second letter, chapter 3, Verse 10, concerning the return of Jesus, he wrote that, quote, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, suddenly and unexpectedly. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And if what, if what Peter says next was relevant 2,000 plus years ago, it is most relevant for today. And the reason I say that should be obvious. Because we're closer to the day of the Lord today that Peter was when he wrote that. He says next, 2 Peter 3, verses 11 and 12. But since the day of the Lord will come, will come, not if it comes, but since the day of the Lord will come, quote, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God? And since we're waiting for that momentous event, Peter then says in verse 14, be diligent, pay attention, be concerned, be determined, be diligent to be found by him when he comes without spot or blemish and that peace it goes on in verse 17 take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but by the way have you ever noticed that there are a lot of buts in the bible I call them Bible buts. And there are a lot of Bible ifs. Usually when you read a but, it introduces a contrast. An if usually introduces a condition. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you watch the news this morning? I did. Because I heard, I haven't seen any news or heard any news since we left home on Thursday. I heard about this horrendous shooting in Orlando. Have you heard about it? Yesterday morning, 50 people killed 
by a gunman. One gunman and over 50 wounded. What's happening to our country? You know, I don't know if you're like I am, but I used to feel safe traveling, going anywhere. But I have to admit, I don't feel safe anymore in my own country. Those, that kind of thing reminds me, and it should remind all of us, that the cup of iniquity is just about full. We are faced, especially today, with raw evil, hatred. You remember 9-11? You remember what you were doing on that day? I remember what I was doing on December 7, 1941. I was just a kid. But I remember lying on our living room floor listening to the radio reporting the attack on Pearl Harbor. People now remember 9-11. My sister called me and I rushed in the house and turned on the TV and I watched the second plane hit the tower and I kept watching and the whole thing collapsed. And I remember thinking that the 21st century is going to be a century of religious conflict. Is it turning out that way? In the name of religion. The shooter yesterday was a Muslim. And he chose to shoot up a bar, lounge, dance hall that is frequented by a lot of gay people because he hated them. That's where we are, folks. What kind of people are, should we be? That's the question that faces God's people today. How do we become holy, godly, peaceful, peaceful? I'm 87 years old, and when I look back on my life, I was born 1929, 10 years before the Second World War started, the invasion of Poland. just a few years after the end of the First World War. In my lifetime, there's been the First World War, Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf War, the War on Terror, and a lot of other conflict in between. And no wonder historians and sociologists are referring to the 20th century as the century of warfare. And now in the 21st century, everybody looked forward to this century with hope. You know? But look what happened. It hardly got started. How do we become holy, godly, peaceful, peaceful stable people? Certainly not by our own efforts. We cannot develop those kind of characteristics by our own efforts. Why not? Because it takes a transformation. A complete change of life. A divine intervention. Takes a totally new orientation of heart and mind. And that's something that only God 
who alone has the power to create and recreate, can accomplish in us. And that we human beings desperately need this kind of transformation ought to be obvious to any observant and perceptive person, though he or she may deny or even repress that kind of awareness. And that's a denial that Paul Tournier, who uh, was a physician psychiatrist, identified as the repression of conscience, repression of conscience. Though at the same time, he says, it is intuitively sensed by human beings that, quote, the world is racing to its ruin. That's from his book entitled, The Whole Person in a Broken World. The, wor the, the world is racing to its ruin. This is a, a physician and a psychiatrist writing. So we have to ask, as Tournier does, as he intimates in his book, we have to ask why all of the efforts of humanity that humanity makes to save itself, instead bring it to ruin. Why, we need to ask, does the efforts that humanity makes to overt war, to avert war, A-V-E-R-T, pitch it into war? I'm thinking of things like the League of Nations and then the United Nations and so Has the United Nations helped the world avoid conflict and war? The, all the money that we spend on the United Nations, has it done that? No. Why do the efforts that humanity makes to guarantee its material security, disrupt the economy, and increase its misery. Why? Why do the efforts that humanity makes to penetrate the secrets of nature and capture its energy lead us instead to the atomic bomb and the nuclear age, which threatens to destroy everything it has built up in the course of the centuries. Why do the efforts that humanity makes to free mankind from social slavery plunge it instead into struggles which only increase our burdens. Tournier talks about that on page nine of his book. He understood this conflicting dilemma. You know, a lot of people don't even think about these kind of things. But he understood this conflicting dilemma as, as he says, quote, a curse, a doom, a rushing into self-destruction, a demonic force. This is a physician and a psychiatrist, remember, that's writing, not a Christian theologian. The Bible calls it Sin, and also lawlessness, which produces, according to Galatians 5.19,
the works of the flesh. And that, my friends, is the mortal disease, sin, that has afflicted mankind ever since Adam and Eve's disbelief and disobedience. That little word, that little three-letter word, sin, covers an awful lot. You know, there are a lot of people out there that scoff and laugh and ridicule when you talk about this, even mention sin. What is the solution? What is the antidote? The solution is that we, you and I, and all mankind, every single person, needs to be empowered, enabled, emboldened, energized from within. God's plan of restoration, you see, goes beyond saving people to changing people. And you know, this is why I have problems with our evangelical friends. I used to be one while well, I am still an evangelical, which means I believe in the gospel, the evangel. But this is one of the reasons, the fundamental reasons why I'm eventually made the transition from the Lutheran church and ministry to the Seventh-day Adventist. But I, I hear, you know, a, a lot of our evangelical friends say, just tell me about Jesus. Tell me how much God loves me that he gave Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for me. Don't talk to me about authority or discipline or, or obedience or God's law. That's legalism, they say. Just, just, I just want to be saved. I just want to know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Don't talk to me about changing myself, about myself being changed. Don't talk to me about transformation. I don't want to change. Listen to this from Ellen White. She says, neither talent, eloquence, nor selfish study of the scriptures Interesting phrase. Selfish study of the scriptures will produce love to God or conformity to the image of Christ. Nothing, nothing but divine power can regenerate the human heart and character and imbue the soul, that is to say the inner being, that's what soul means. With the love of Christ, which will ever manifest itself in love to those for whom he died. That's from the Review and Herald, 1893. Nothing but divine power does it. And how do we get that power? That's what I want to know next. If only divine power does it, how can I get it? By the way, one of my Lutheran seminary professors 
who became my mentor and a, a lifelong friend. He was a friend even after I left the Lutheran Church. I kept in touch with him, called him every once in a while. He called me. We would talk about things over the phone. A few years ago, I can't remember just how many. He called me one day. No, I called him to see how he was doing, and we had a conversation on the telephone. And at the end of that conversation, he said, just before we hung up, he said, Ray, I have concluded that this church, and he was speaking of his Lutheran denomination, I have concluded that this church is a Christless church. From a theologian. And we ended our conversation, and I sat there thinking about that. What did he mean? And I thought, I've got to go down to Minneapolis and spend a couple of days with him and discuss this. What are you talking about? What do you mean? And I was making plans to do that, and two days later, I was on a Thursday, his son called me, and he said, my father died this morning. That was, you know, hard enough to handle, but then I couldn't believe what he said next. He said, he told me he wants you to preach at his funeral. Seventh-day Adventist. I had two days to prepare. My wife and I drove down to DeKalb, Illinois, and I preached at his funeral. And I told that story in my sermon, what he said. And I said to the congregation, I said, I don't know. And there were some Lutheran pastors and theologians in the, in the congregation that day. And I, I told them, I said, I don't know what, what he meant by that because I didn't get a chance to discuss it with him. But I said, maybe you ought to think about it. Strange thing, nobody said anything to me after that service. I don't know why, but it was almost like they didn't want to deal with it. So if, the, if, we, if only divine power can transform human beings, how do we get it? Ellen White says in God's Amazing Grace, 195, the Holy Spirit, quote, works in and through everyone who receives Christ. Now, I knew that before I ever read what she said. But I was happy to hear her say it. The Holy Spirit, listen to it again, works in and through every one who receives Christ. Then she says, those who know the indwelling of this Holy Spirit reveal its fruit. The Holy Spirit works in and through everyone who receives Christ and everybody who knows that indwelling Holy Spirit then begins to reveal its fruit. The point is that when you receive 
Christ, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This is why it's critical that we believe in the Trinity. One God, three persons. Because when you receive Christ, you receive the Father. And you receive the Holy Spirit. You can't separate them. So when you receive Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior and invited him into your heart, you have the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. It's part of the grace of God. And that's the only way that the Holy Spirit has access to your inner being. So every time you read the word soul, whether it's used in the Bible or in the spirit of prophecy, think inner being, because that's what it's referring to. That's the only way that the Holy Spirit has access to your inner being. When you receive Christ, you receive the Spirit. And, she says, when the Holy Spirit is received into the heart, the whole character, you might use the word person, is changed. Gospel Workers 364. And she also says, the old hereditary traits of character must be overcome. That's an imperative. They must be overcome. The natural desires of the soul must be changed. All deception, all falsifying, all evil speaking must be put away. Three sentences, three imperatives. It must be done. The new life, which makes men and women Christ-like, is to be lived. She says in Gospel Workers 127, the tastes and inclinations become pure and holy. Wow. Five, page 513. Christ gives them the breath of his own spirit, the life of his own life. The Holy Spirit puts forth his highest energies to work in heart and mind. Now, friends, this is not just fanciful idealism. This is truth. But how is it possible? Why is it necessary? Because Jesus said, John 6, verses 63 and 64, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. But, she says, there are some of you who do not believe. So the issue is faith. Jesus says in John 15, verse 26, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And in chapter 16, verse 13, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And by the way, that's not just doctrinal truth, as we'll see. That's the first work of the Spirit, that he's going to guide you into all truth. As soon as you receive Jesus, you receive the Spirit, 
and the Spirit starts to guide you into all truth. And 1 John 5, verse 6 says, the Spirit is the truth. That's why he cannot do anything else but guide you and I into the truth, because he is the truth. All truth. The truth about God, the truth about his law, the truth about his grace, the truth about his will, about his righteousness, about his grace and mercy, about the gospel, and the truth about the self as the spirit speaks to the human mind and the human heart. It's usually when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal the truth about ourself that we start to balk and resist. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to go there. And then the Holy Spirit reveals the truth about the nature of fallen human beings. And also the truth, according to 1 John 5, 12, that whoever has the Son has life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Not life like God defines it. Jesus says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. True life. Life the way God created it to be lived. You see, once the Holy Spirit has access to the inner being, he begins his work in the heart of those who have been saved by faith in Christ, and he begins to transform them into Christ-likeness. I, I praise God for that, you know, because I don't want to be the person I was when Jesus first came into my, into my life. I don't want to be that person. I don't like that person. I'm, I'm so thankful I can be something else. Something better. And you know, the Bible calls the result of this inner work the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit always refers to the ripened product. We only pick ripened fruit. We don't like to eat unripened grapes, do we? We pick it when it's ripe. And the fruit of the Spirit tells us exactly what that fruit is. Fruit of the Spirit. Now, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Let's begin reading at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. They don't harmonize. 
They're in conflict. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Listen to this list. Notice the first one. Boy, we need to hear that today. Sexual immorality. Do you want to know what that is? Don't ask the contemporary culture what that is. Ask God's word. He defines what sexual immorality is. Not contemporary culture. Sensuality goes along with the first one. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what Pastor Holmes says. That's what the Bible says. That's what God says. He says anybody who does those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know how many times you go to church. But if that's the way you're living, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, the Bible says. But, contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now you tell me which of those two lists, the works of the flesh or the fruits of the spirit, are the characteristics of a holy and godly life. The answer is obvious, isn't it? Anybody who has any sense reading that knows. It's obvious. So the, the Bible contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh. The difference between good and bad, best and worst, becomes dramatically vivid. He, Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. No mistaking them. They're apparent. They're obvious. You can immediately recognize them. It's in the news every day. And they're, 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 they're evident even to the unbelieving world, unless they're blind. Remember Tournier's phrase, the repression, repression of the conscience? That's what the unbelieving world is doing all the time, repressing its conscience. God created us with a conscience. <coughs> but we can repress it. Now, when you read the list of the works of the flesh, works of the flesh do you see any of that in the world around you? Oh, yeah. Do you see any of it in people you know? And this list of the works of the flesh here is, is not just a sociological analysis of the social rot 
in contemporary culture. It is the biblical description of sin's power to corrupt human beings. That's what it is. In the context of a grave warning, he says, I warn you, like I did before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how do you think Paul felt when he said that? I'm sure his heart was heavy. Sometimes, in order to communicate God's truth, you have to tell the truth. You say it in love. And this is evidenced in, in such things as, in our contemporary world, as the breakdown of the institution of marriage, Now, we all know that the institution of marriage is being trampled underfoot today. What do you hear most of the time? Oh, it's just a piece of paper. Come on. A drastic increase in single parents. Kids growing up without fathers or mothers. Same-sex Marriage, I do this because it's nonsense. There's no such thing as, as that kind of a marriage according to God's word. Remember, it's the word of God that provides the definition, not culture. If we're believers, if we're God's people. How about the drug culture today and and the crime it produces, and the, the agony, and the misery, and the... How about the promiscuous lifestyle of public figures today? So-called idols of the culture. Greed etc., etc., etc. Oh, it's sad. It's depressing. It's discouraging. We're on the verge of social chaos and total confusion. Children are growing up today in an environment a, a confusing environment so that they don't know who they are. And now we're faced with this, this nonsense about the use of bathrooms where a kid can decide, well, today I want to be a girl or I want to be a boy today. The next day, well, I'll be a boy, I'll be a girl, I'll go, I'll go to this room or I'll go to that. Come on, that's chaotic, that's confusion. It makes no sense to me. I'm sorry. Do we love these people, these confused people? Yes, we have to. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit, remember. We should read Galatians 5 again, you know. The list is introduced by the but, which I already mentioned, which tells us that it's going to reveal a dramatic and vivid contrast. And then it ends with, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Contrast that with those who do such things, the works of the flesh, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I wonder if there's any significance in the fact that there are 15 works of the flesh. Plus, Paul says, things like these. Things that he doesn't even mention. 
15 works of the flesh, nine fruit of the spirit. You know, what does that mean? What does that suggest? It, to me, it suggests that there's a lot of stuff that needs to be overcome. And God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit are needed to do the job. Nothing else will work. No attempted human solution will work. Hymn 109 in our hymnal. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. You know, many people are aware and they agree that something needs to change in our world. That something is bad wrong. And we try to bring about that change by education and or by legislative means, by passing laws, human laws. And you have to have laws because you can't live in society without, without law or you'd have anarchy. We try to bring about that change by changing the structure or the personnel of governments, of legal systems or social reforms, etc. But that doesn't work because what needs to be changed is the inner life of persons. That's why the church is right when it concentrates on evangelism. We call it soul winning. One at a time, we concentrate on the individual. We preach to people. We invite individuals. Receive Jesus into your life. One at a time. Last Sabbath, we baptized two people in our church as a result of Unlock Revelation. A father and his 11-year-old boy together. They're in the baptistry together. And their mother, who was a believer, sitting in the front pew, tears running down her face. She was wiping her eyes through the whole thing. And we invite them to give a testimony if they want to. It's not required, but if they want to. Both of them did. 11-year-old boy, he wrote it on the typewriter. His testimony it was wonderful. And in the process of his testimony, he said, I'm going to be a pastor when I grow up. And when we gave them gifts afterwards, and I gave a gift to the boy, I said, Andy, I want to tell you a secret. I have been praying for that for years. But I didn't say anything to you because I didn't want to put any pressure on you. I wanted it to come right from God to your own heart. And then I told him, I'll keep praying for you. Because now you're really going to need it. The most radical change of all is the change in the inner life of persons. That's radical. That's why we 
baptized by immersion. What? Because it symbolizes death and burial to the old person. And then when you come up out of the water, it symbolizes the resurrection to the new life. And in our church, it's customary to give a rose to every baptized person after their baptism. A red rose. Because the red symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed for their sin. The green symbolizes the new beginning. And the aroma symbolizes the kind of life that the baptized is going to live. Sweet smelling. As Paul says in Corinthians. So, the interchange and transformation of persons is the most radical change of all, but it's the most resisted. Change everything but me. Change the rules, change the schools, change education, change the government, change everything. But don't change me, don't mess with me. And history proves that that approach changes nothing. Nothing. In fact, everything just gets worse. What needs changing in our world can only come about through people who themselves have been changed. Changed to the point where we're actually incapable, listen to this, incapable any longer of behaving in ways that used to be habitual to us. That's real change. That's called transformation. And only through such people will God's voice be heard above the ruins of human civilization through people in whom the Holy Spirit has produced his fruit. Underline his fruit. Spiritual characteristics can, that can only be received by grace through faith, not achieved by human effort. So we're going to take a look this week at this list of Paul's characteristics that are such a vital manifestation of a living, believing faith. And the first one on the list is love. Why? Can we assume that it's because it's the most important one? In the sense of being foundational to all the others? In the sense that love is the primary attribute of Christian character? As it is of God's character, God is love, the Bible says. It doesn't say love is God. It says God is love. You know, if we really knew and experienced this, I know, I know you'll understand, dear ones, why I say this. If we really knew and understand this, this, this whole racism issue would disappear overnight. I can understand why it's there out in the world, you know. But in the church, In the fellowship of God's people, no. The, the Bible tells us that all of these barriers between human beings have been broken down at the cross. We just don't believe it. If we don't believe it, we don't live it. What kind of love is Paul talking about anyway? We need to know that it's certainly not what passes for love in our contemporary world. 
It's not the self-centered, me, 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 immoral, unrestrained desires of the flesh that are against the spirit. Not that kind of behavior that is flung in our faces today in which the modern culture molds our children. There's the motivation, friends, for church schools. My heart breaks when I hear of church schools closing because they don't have enough money to, to operate. Come on. What are we supposed to do with our money? How important is this? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Without this fruit of the Spirit, Everything else is worthless. The most eloquent language, the gift of prophecy, knowledge of spiritual realities, even faith itself, extreme generosity, sacrificial service, apart from love, gains us nothing and makes us nothing worthless meaningless, fruitless lives. Love is patient, Paul says. It's kind. Love does not envy or boasts, not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Apart from that kind of love, no human relationship has any real hope of success or endurance. In the New Testament Greek, there are at least five words for love. Did you know that? Eros, which means sexual love. Sorge, family affection. Philea, friendship. Philanthropia, humanitarianism. Agape, divine love which is exemplified in the character and the life of Jesus. Agape is the word that is used in the, in the Bible in Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 13, John 3, 16. <coughs> it's also the word for love used in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Every single time you read the English word love, it's Greek agape. And by, by the way, that is not just good, warm, fuzzy feelings about somebody. It's sacrificial love. When I used to counsel young couples who wanted to get married, I never married anybody without a, a, quite a lengthy series of counseling. One of my first questions was, do you love each other? I'd ask the guy, do you love her? Ask her, do you love him? And they always answered, yes. Then I would say, how much? How much do you love? 25%? Fifty, seventy-five, or a hundred percent. They would say, oh, a hundred percent. I'd say, what does that mean? The essence of love, agape love, is sacrifice. 
the giving of oneself for the sake of another. It is far more than fuzzy, warm feelings. I don't know, you know, today the marriage vows, they don't use a lot of the, many times the, the old traditional vow for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. You got to sacrifice if you make those kind of vows. Our time is all, almost up, but I, I, I have to tell a story, a little story, to kind of illustrate what I was talking about. Some of you know my transition story from the Lutheran ministry to the Advent. Some of you don't, but I don't have time to tell the whole story. It came about because an Adventist woman influenced my wife, became my wife's friend, and so on and so on, and invited her to a Wisconsin camp meeting where she heard Elder Joe Cruz preach, who was, I call him, Adventist heavy artillery. <laughs> and she decided to accept the truth concerning the Sabbath and so on. and, and uh, my ministry started to fall apart because of that, because the congregation didn't want to accept that. And I had a problem with it. I had a successful ministry. There was an awakening among the youth in my congregation. Fantastic. But I hated those people. And all Adventists, I was mad. And I behaved that way. Something was happening to me that terrified me inwardly. I couldn't stand myself. I couldn't, I, I couldn't do anything. So I finally, I, 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 in desperation, I went to the sanctuary of Sharon Lutheran Church in Bessemer, where I'm living now and pastoring as an Adventist minister. I laid down on the floor in front of the altar on my face. And I don't know if I was there in one or two hours, but it was quite a while. I couldn't speak out loud. I was groaning inwardly. <clears throat> and I, I told the Lord, I said, if you, you have to take this sin away. I was re wrestling with sin. I don't know what, if, if that hadn't happened that day, Everything that has happened to me and my wife since would have never happened. I don't know where I'd be today. But I thought, I can't preach to my congregation with this sin. And I begged him to, to, to forgive me and to take it away. And he did. He did. He gave me the assurance that my sin was forgiven. And not only that, he cleansed me from the unrighteousness. In other words, it was gone. Is that a miracle or not? And when I got up from the floor and I walked out of that church, I was like walking a foot off the ground. I was so elated. And I started to go home to the parsonage and I stopped in the middle of, of the sidewalk and the Spirit spoke to me and, and, and told me, you've got to do something else. This is not over. <laughs> you've got to go to, those, to that lady, those people that influenced your wife, and, and ask them to forgive you for all of this hatred and the anger. So I got in my car and I drove back to Wakefield where they were living and knocked on their door. Dr. Victor Bigford, dentist. By the way, they became our best friends. He and his wife both died this year. She died in February, he died in April. Terrible loss for us. Anyway, he invited me in. I confessed. I told him, and I said I was sorry. They forgave me. And then they did the same thing to me. They said, we're so sorry that our influence has caused you all of this pain and, and so on. And 
and then I forgave them, and he shook my hand, and she gave me a big hug, and we have been inseparable friends ever since because God did it. It was only after that transaction was over that I was able to deal with the doctrine, the theology. This is what I'm talking about. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. This is love. I had no idea what was going to happen after that. All I knew is I had to get this burden off of my heart or I couldn't continue in the ministry preaching to my people every week. But friends, you know, I'm, I'm bearing witness here to the truth that I'm sharing with you today. When God does it, he does a complete job of it. Amen. And that's called transformation. And that's what, that is the desperate need in the world today from God's people. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.